0: do turn a blind eye you can hear the people cry wake up and be strong and fight for what is wrong
1: welcome everybody to bold conversations about race a podcast brought to you by Showing Up for Racial Justice National in collaboration with Small Beans Comedy and produced by White People for Black Lives out in Los Angeles. I'm one of your hosts, Dahlia Forlito, and I use the pronouns they, them.
0: And I'm your other host. This is Yvette Ale, and I also use pronouns they, them.
1: Welcome, everybody. So we know that a lot has happened since the last time we were able to put out an episode for y'all. We have had uprisings and pandemic and fires fires and earthquakes and catastrophic climate events. And as organizers, both Evette and I have just been really busy uh, working on what we can control here in Los Angeles and, and uh, various types of responses to the repression that we're seeing and policy change and so forth. So let's just say we've had more than enough keeping us busy over these last few months. So we were unable to get out the episodes we wanted to get out to y'all from the UCLA event that we had um, several months ago. But we want to give you all a heads up about what's coming. So today... we are actually going to be talking about the elections because we know this is on everybody's mind right now and you know 2020 has been a well a pretty shitty year and the elections are coming and they're really important so we're gonna be talking about that and then we have a listener answer your questions episode coming up that we'll be following after the election one uh, that we put out And then we will be getting to the last two episodes from our UCLA event that we had several months ago. So be on the lookout for all this good stuff. And remember, we always want to hear from you. So if you have any questions, comments, you can always email us at boldconversationspod at gmail.com.
0: But before we dive in to elections, and we have a lot to say about local elections and the electoral process in general. But before we get into that, we just want to create some space to honor uh, a titan, a legend, uh, a inspiration, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who passed away last night. Um, I know a lot of us are are sitting with that loss, sitting with the implications of that loss for our rights, for our futures, for generations to come, Um And also remembering just the powerful example of a woman that trailblazed in the legal profession as an advocate for women's rights, for the rights of queer people, brown and black people, who really set an example of what it means to live your values She was a trailblazer at the ACLU, founding the Women's Rights Project, and worked tirelessly on cases related to gender discrimination. And later, she was appointed as the second ever woman Supreme Court justice and continued that fight for equal representation under the law with her poignant dissents. Most judges, especially those that reach the highest court in our nation, are not Ruth Bader Ginsburg. They're not women that pursue civil rights. She was a rare exception that dedicated her career to uplifting our most marginalized communities and believed that there would not be enough women in the Supreme Court until there was nine. So thank you, Notorious RBG. Um, I know I'm sitting with that sadness today as we record this podcast. As we think about Ruth Bader Ginsburg's legacy,
1: we are also thinking about our future. So we know that the Republican Party has been stalling another bill that can help provide relief to people who are hurting right now. And simultaneously, they have been packing courts around the country with judges who hold their conservative values, not only judges but young judges, so that they get these lifetime appointments in courts all around the country so that they can continue um, harming folks that we care about in the criminal legal system. And so as the conservative party has literally done nothing for suffering people, they are now moving with lightning speed to secure a replacement for her. And that to me, and I'm sure to to many of us who are listening is concerning because most presidents in their presidency will not even get one opportunity to elect a Supreme Court justice. And we have the person in the White House who shall remain nameless with his death and destruction that surrounds him and the chaos that surrounds him may have a third opportunity to select a person to hold a Supreme Court justice position. And we know what that can do to the fate of this country and what they are responsible for doing when they're looking at uh, civil rights cases. So I don't know about y'all, but I'm seriously concerned about what this means for us and what that means for the Supreme Court and the way that they even though they're supposed to allegedly be a neutral body. Um, we know that in, in in practice, it is very partisan and they can take away our rights. And we have very little recourse when, when they make those decisions. And that can harm all communities that we care about and our freedoms.
0: Yeah, I share your concern, Dahlia, And this is why our elections are so important. This is why organizing is so important, critical. It will take all of us being activated, being on top of our game, not missing out on the opportunity, on the privilege and the right to vote this coming election. So we take this fool in the White House out and start the process for change. And I know folks have a lot of complicated feelings about voting, and we're going to get into that. But I just want to start off this conversation by saying that the passing of RBG makes these elections even more critical, even more important. Our very lives depend on it right now.
1: Absolutely. And so we are going to dive right in and we're going to talk about elections and we're going to, you know, put in a little, I guess you could say, preamble that we have no illusions about the limitations of voting. So we will acknowledge that. And we, we, we don't believe that voting is the only way toward liberation, but it is one crucial way to get us closer to the world that we wanna see. And for myself, I believe that because, you know, we'll talk a little bit uh, down the line about voter suppression and everything that the right does to suppress the vote. They spend a lot of resources, time, money, energy legislation that they're crafting to try to get folks to not have the ability to vote. They wouldn't do that unless it was that important. So that to me signals that voting is important and it's just one tool in our toolbox to get us to where we wanna be as
0: a society. And it's also telling how our civil rights heroes gave their lives put their lives on the line to ensure that we continue having the right to vote to expand the right to vote to as many people as possible so it's it's not just important because the right uses it against us it's important because so many of our ancestors fought to get that right as well
1: not just fought but died yeah literally put their lives on the line if we can sort of dissect a little bit more, go a little bit deeper into why we think voting is a key tactic for social justice. So we know like sort of values wise, we know historically as well that, you know, 50 years ago, people were literally dying for the right to vote. And now we are faced with a lot of different opinions about voting. So there's there's apathy that we know exists out there. People just don't care. And then there's the, you know, feeling that, well, what is the point? You know, why why even bother? Like, can we talk a little bit about why it's even important to think about voting as as something that we should be doing?
0: Yeah. I mean, I like how Taina Vargas Edmund of Initiate Justice framed it as voting as a way of harm reduction, as a tool for harm reduction. And we know that a lot of folks aren't crazy about the ticket. Uh, There's a lot of critiques of Biden, of Kamala. um, And despite those candidates not fully aligning with our vision, not fully, fully aligning with our values, we need to vote in order to preserve a democracy some semblance of a democracy that's why it's so important right now Mm -hmm. and voting is not just about the presidential election it's about our local elected officials so much of our lives is actually determined by our city council by our board of supervisors by our representatives at the state legislature Mm -hmm. so we need to really look down ticket because the And here in L.A. County alone, the Board of Supervisors controls a 30 plus billion dollar budget that has so much more day to day impact on our lives than any other elected official. And so being able to pay attention to what's happening in our immediate communities is just as important as getting this fool out of office.
1: Right. And like and then even to that point around, you know, whether or not your one unique individual vote counts, some of these elections are literally determined by a few hundred, sometimes even dozens, just dozens of votes and what type of impact you can have in determining whether or not there is a uh, far-right, alt-right, conservative racist, or somebody who more closely aligns with your values. And when we look at elections all across the country, really, like, some of them are just down to a few hundred votes. Even in, in the 2000 election between Al Gore and George Bush, when George Bush s- literally stole the election, in Florida, that was between, like, 500 votes. Like, that, and, and look at what that did to tailspin us, propelling us forward into a war that we can't get out of and you know, we don't need to dissect you know, the, the Bush presidency at this point, but imagine where we would have been if we had Al Gore who actually believed in climate science mm-hmm. and George Bush who was a warmonger. So what could have been the difference between us? What would have happened? We'll never know, but I would like mm-hmm. to think we would have been in a better place than we are now. Um, even thinking as far back as 20 years ago and the implications of just a few hundred votes in that presidential election. And we see that even now city councils can literally, all it takes to be mayor could be moved by a few thousand votes because people don't pay attention to the local races. And so it's really up to y'all to like do your research, look at who's going to be on your ballot and find somebody that most closely matches your values. We know that there's, at this point in time, we're not we're not gonna have the perfect candidate. It's unfortunate. And we also have to figure out a way to hold the line so that things don't get worse.
0: Absolutely, and then candidates aside, there's also ballot initiatives. There's local policy that's going to be decided on november 3rd and so there's there's local policies like prop 17 which would expand voter rights Mm -hmm. to folks that are, are that are on parole there is prop 20 which would roll back a lot of the criminal justice reform work that's been happening over the last few decades these types of ballot initiatives are going to have a huge impact on our communities, on the funding that's available to our communities and our people, especially those that have been most impacted by COVID-19. And so we need to be paying attention to these local budgets, to these local ballot initiatives, especially in this critical moment.
1: Yeah yeah i 100 percent agree and for folks who are outside of los angeles county sorry that we're talking a little bit about some local uh propositions um, but we will be covering some things that are relative to los angeles county and the state of california but if you are outside the state of california uh, we encourage you to check out a website you could go to ballotpedia and you can look up some uh, local ballot ballot initiatives there get some information there um, but do your research do your homework and find out what's going on for your local election and participate. Again, it's one way. We know it's not the only way, but we got to stop the bleeding because if we don't push back, then it's only going to keep getting worse, probably beyond what we can even think of at this moment. So can we talk a little bit more about... the tactics that will often get used and that we're seeing right now to suppress votes. So one of them is something called redistricting. Can can you explain a little bit about redistricting, gerrymandering, what this all means and why it's important for us to be paying attention to that?
0: Yeah. So the country is divided into several districts and the district that you live determines your representative. But those lines, those boundaries around districts can be changed by the party that controls the state that you live in and that is concerning when it comes to the republican control around our country so what the republicans have been doing and i would say both the republicans and the democrats do this right like this is not just reserved for one party or another uh But it's used to be able to cut into populations that are on your opposing party and concentrate them in areas uh, that dilute their voting power. So, for instance, if we have a district that is 60 percent Democrat and 40 percent Republican, the Republicans can redraw the lines to move 20% of Democrats into another district. And so it carves them out and they take control of that district. And so that has been a a big tactic of the Republican party to reduce the power, reduce the power of the individual vote. Mm -hmm. And I mean, there's lots to say about the electoral college and it's it's effects on the power of the individual vote, um, because let let me remind everyone that the fool in office didn't win the popular vote. Mm-hmm. But because of the Electoral College, because you're grouped, your vote is grouped into districts, it dilutes your vote. Mm hmm.
1: And let me tell you, so we had two instances in our presidential elections where we had candidates who did not win the popular vote, but won the electoral college, so so George W. Bush and the one we got right now in office. If that happened to Democrats and Republicans lost in in those ways, we would have gotten rid of the electoral college in the 2000 election. The only reason why we have the electoral college to this day is to continuously give power to the Republican uh, to states that are primarily going to vote Republican, and when we examine the history of the Electoral College, that is a history that is is actually tied to the period of slavery, where uh, we set it up so that um, states that had less people voting could still have political power and the reason why those states would have less people voting was because it was highly those are states that were highly populated by people who were enslaved and were not considered human and did not have the right to vote and so they instituted the electoral college to try to tip the balance and give political power to those uh those Particular uh, states, and now we continue that legacy of the Electoral College, and the implication continues to be that we are allowed to have people fill the presidency that do not win a popular vote, and they only get into office uh, because they manage to win the Electoral College, which also skews their efforts when they are, you know, on the road in 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 going through states to engage voters. Uh, you know, part of the One of many failures of the Democratic Party is that they consider some states foregone conclusions and they don't even try to engage voters in those states because they just don't think that those voters count. So you have all of these people who are not even being engaged by elected officials on on multiple sides uh, because they only care about the states that can get them the the most electoral college votes. And so that in and of itself is also another problem of the many problems of our current electoral system. So, in addition to redistricting, which we know is like super problematic, and literally in some states, there was there was one state that uh, sued because of the ways in which uh, they 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 redrew the lines. And I quote, "With surgical precision to exclude the black vote." This is this went to uh, the Supreme Court of that state, and that is what. They, the judges said. So this is this is how scientific this all goes down to try to suppress the vote. And so in other ways that we see voter suppression, uh, we have voter ID laws. That might not sound like a big deal if you you know have an ID or you have access to an ID or you uh, are come from wealth privilege and you can afford to to renew your your ID or or you can drive to a DMV to get your ID and you have access to that. So for those of us who, you know, have have various types of privileges, it might not seem like a voter ID law is that big of a deal. But we have to put ourselves in the positions of people in other parts of the country, other parts of the state, people who do not have wealth access, people who are aging or elderly who cannot drive, who have different, you know, people who have different types of IDs. So basically, what happens is they get to determine which types of ID qualifies even for the, your your ability to vote. And so in some of these states, they'll say a college ID no good. That's not good enough to sh- to prove your who you are so that you can vote. But if you are a gun owner and you have a you have a license to carry a gun, that ID is good enough. So what does that inherently say? who who are they targeting? Who are they trying to get to the votes, right? So, like, they like force these voter ID laws that disenfranchise people who are poor, uh, people who are older, um, people in rural areas of the country, um, simply because they want to make this bizarro case that there's all of this voter fraud that happens at every election which we have we know time and again that that is actually not true it's incredibly rare it's so rare like completely rare and so they 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 institute what has been known to people as like this generation's poll tax essentially to try to prevent people from voting So I encourage folks to check out, look into the problems of voter ID. So if you think it's not that big of a deal because you have an ID and it's okay for you, you have to think about its implications for other people.
0: Yeah, I mean, and speaking of polls... Polling stations is another way that they institute voter suppression. So thinking about where these polling stations are, how accessible they are, how many there Mm -hmm. are, like those are ways that folks are limited in voting. If you have to travel, if it's inaccessible, if you have to take several buses, if you don't have childcare, if it's, you know, if these polling stations are are so limited that you have to wait in line for hours Mm -hmm. all of that prevents folks from voting absolutely
1: and even recently uh in the state of kentucky they actually took away most of the polling stations and just so happens the areas that they not so coincidentally took the polling stations out of were majority black areas of the state so when we talk about surgical precision to deny that the access to the vote for people, particularly black people and people of color, you know, it's, 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 they really have it down to a science of oh. how to prevent people from voting.
0: And they're getting creative. Yeah. Just when, just when we thought that voter suppression, you know, couldn't be any worse, here comes what's his face attacking our mail system. Right. The post office. The post office. (laughs) Like what? That's creative though, I will say. It was definitely creative. And they're literally pulling up the mailboxes from corners so they're not accessible to folks. They're defunding USPS. They're
1: locking mail sorting machines. They were saying reports of like packages that were sitting around that had like food that was expiring, Dead baby chicks that that oh God, you know, yeah. just like Ugh. things that were people were trying to send through the mail and 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 didn't make it. Like, what is that about? And then they want to say that it you know there was no intent to try to stop people from voting for this election. It's all just one big coincidence. No,
0: it's it's clear what they're trying to do, and it's a desperate attempt to suppress the vote because they know that the majority of people in this country don't support this conservative, fascist, authoritarian system that What's-His-Face is trying to implement. I mean, he jokes about, or he says that he jokes about, you know, staying beyond his next term. Mm -hmm. But I don't think he's kidding. Yeah,
1: I mean, and then even, so we're talking about other creative ways to steal the vote. Look at uh, in, in in the state of Florida, they they passed and with overwhelming support, over seventy percent of the people supported re-enfranchising people who had past felony convictions, mm-hmm. so that they can get their right to vote back. And this this coalition of people, it was a lot of unlikely people coming together to support that. A cross-section of people in the state of Florida came together to pass amendment four. It passed overwhelmingly to give people with past felony convictions the right to vote. And what did they do? They said that in order for you to get your ability to vote, you have to pay back. All your fines and fees and restitution, and for some people, that's millions of dollars, mm-hmm. and they don't even have a database to tell people how much they even owe in the
0: first place. Mm.
1: Talk about creative.
0: Yeah, I mean it's it's incredibly disgusting what's happening. Yeah, yeah. really, it's it's absolutely disgusting. Uh, but folks keep organizing. We yeah. keep pushing back. Yeah. We keep calling this out, and we're going to have I I'm I'm speaking this into reality. We're gonna have a wave, an overwhelming historic wave of folks voting, and we need that historic wave of folks voting mm-hmm. because we know that some folks' votes are not gonna make it. Yeah, all of these tactics, they're going to have an impact on these elections. Period. We know this is gonna happen. That's why we need more folks to vote. That's why we need everybody that can vote to vote. Mm -hmm. For folks that don't have that right, for folks that are on parole, Mm -hmm. that are incarcerated, Mm -hmm. that are undocumented, Mm -hmm. that are not citizens. Mm -hmm. I'm one of those people. I cannot vote. I'm not a US citizen. And even though I've lived here for most of my life, my entire adult life and most of my childhood, I don't have that vote. And so my life depends on those that can vote. Right. And then when we talk about candidates, you
1: know, we we know for those of us who are, mm, shall we say, more progressive, um, it can it can be easy to feel just really disillusioned by the system because there has been no candidate that has. Lived up to our ideals of justice, of humanity, of equity. It seems like the system can be so, uh, so. What is even the word? It's like it almost. I don't even. I can't even find the word. It's almost like it just like swallows people up. You you get you get into government, and somehow you can become a different person. And we've seen it in local elections. Uh, we've we've seen it in in national elections.
0: I mean, it's not even just swallowing people up. Like people say one thing Absolutely. and believe and do another. Absolutely. Right? I, I mean, we have our local sheriff. He he was <laughs> sup- allegedly
1: supposed to be progressive. You had progressive groups, you had Democratic parties endorsing him because of the things that he was saying around quote criminal justice reform.
0: Right. I mean, Jackie Lacey is another Absolutely. example. Like she, you know, touts these liberal ideals and that she believes in equity in the system and blah 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 but in practice she doesn't hold law enforcement accountable she's pushed to incarcerate more people during the pandemic mm-hmm. no mm-hmm. less mm-hmm. and her her actions don't match her words and her rhetoric mm-hmm. and so yeah you know it's there are folks that are transformed by the system when they get into office but there's a lot of folks that just manipulate the fuck out of voters oh can I say fuck yeah why not? Okay. Shit. So there there are just a lot of Electeds that manipulate the fuck out of voters. And so that's why it's important to understand that it's not just about elections. Mm -hmm. It's a piece of organizing because the goal should be to reduce the power of these systems of oppression and not just replace one bad candidate with another or even one bad candidate with a slightly better candidate. That's Mm -hmm. not our ultimate goal. Mm -hmm. Right. It's to take power away from these systems. Mm -hmm. And the sheriff is a good example of that. And, you know, community is calling for his resignation in this moment. He has consistently, consistently defied the Board of Supervisors, defied the inspector general's office. He's under FBI investigation. His sheriff's department has been murdering black and brown people on the streets of Los Angeles with impunity. And yet he's not being held accountable. And so I get the demand for the sheriff to resign and he should resign, but there's no guarantee that the next person that takes his place is any better than he is. And so while we're pushing to remove him, we need to be pushing to defund the sheriff's department to reduce their scope, their power, the number of sheriffs that are on the street. These need to be demands that go hand in hand. Absolutely. And so when we think about elections generally and the vote
1: generally, like to me it's sort of about like what are the conditions in which we want to continue to fight as organizers? And there are some conditions that allow us the ability to to make more moves than others, right. So even in the last four years that we have been surviving this presidential catastrophe, You know, that meant for us as organizers, we knew we weren't going to be able to move much on the federal level, just like full stop. Okay, so that's the condition in which we are organizing versus a different candidate in which we we would be able to push and we think that we might be able to strategically move things at the federal level. Right. So like. So for me, like, I think about when we were talking about this, like, piece around harm reduction, like, we need to right now kind of just, like, stop the bleeding because another four years of this president presidency, I don't know how much will be able to survive to be realistic, like what this is going to look like versus having a different candidate. And by you know, no means am I trying to suggest that the current democratic ticket is going to be our way to liberation. Absolutely. Like is not anything that I would be espousing or is aligned with my values. It's just about, will this offer us better political conditions to continue the fights that we are trying to, achieve so we we had a listener question uh which was i don't like kamala or biden as candidates how do you reconcile voting for people you don't particularly support the cognitive dissonance is a big challenge for me in this election and whoever sent that i feel you i feel you
0: yeah i mean i think it's this question really speaks to everything we've been talking about so far that this is about harm reduction this is about stopping the bleeding It's not about putting all of our eggs in the Biden-Harris basket. That's not gonna be what transforms our country. Mm -hmm. It's not just about those elections. It's about the organizing work that we do on the ground locally and federally together Mm -hmm. to dismantle these systems, to take power away from harmful systems and put that money, the power, the decision-making into the hands of our community members mm-hmm. and ensure that the folks that are most impacted by the system are the ones that we center in this moment. Because a lot of us, we may still have our jobs. Like most folks that are middle class, upper class, s- probably still have employment in a home and food on the table. Mm-hmm. But we're talking about our working class siblings. We're talking about folks that are delivering our groceries while we sit at home, able to work from home. Mm -hmm. We're talking about our undocumented day laborers who are out in the fields right now, picking our food in incredibly toxic conditions, especially here in California because of the fires, who are not given PPE, who are not given health care, who are not protected under the system. Like those are the folks that we need to be centering and thinking about right now. I'm I'm really asking voters right now to put aside our purest conceptions of what our politics should look like and really think about the impact on those vulnerable communities.
1: Particularly of, you know, You know, I know we keep like I'm just talking about the presidential election, but like think about the vulnerable communities in four more years of who is currently in office. And is that going to give us the political conditions to be able to push for the demands that we want to see for the change that we want to see? Or is it only going to exacerbate, you know, make worse, uh, continue a pandemic, continue, you know, down the road of of. Uh, civil rights violations in in even more egregious ways than there were with other presidents and it's not saying that you know these civil rights violations and the the repression and all of that and uh didn't exist before Trump presidency and and we know that it you know it doesn't matter whether you're a democrat or or a republican um you know we we know that uh that that uh there's sometimes not really much of a difference um, between the these two major parties but we know that four more years of what we have in the current office is
0: is not good for our survival democracy depends on it right now Mm -hmm. that is how critical it is it's not just about whether we have a republican or a democrat in office this is about whether or not we have some semblance of a democracy in four years
1: right and the other piece too is like you know assuming hoping whatever that at least at the very least you know the lesser of two evils wins you know in terms of the democratic party what we do have to make sure particularly for folks who may have just like kind of come into their own in terms of activism and organizing maybe in these past few months or the past year that you don't just go back home and say okay we got our guy we're safe now, a Democrat is in office. we're good, we're normal. We'll get back to how things used to be because that is the problem, that is how we continue to get ourselves into a problem with never actually making progress is people being comfortable because they don't feel a particular threat or impact to their daily lives or their well-being. And so, you know, we have to think about the long game here and what it is that we really want to see, for all of us to thrive. And until we actually get there, it doesn't matter whether it's a Democrat or it doesn't matter whether it's a Republican. It doesn't matter who's in any of the offices. We have to stay vocal. We have to stay in the streets. We have to stay organized. We have to stay active. And we have to be part of a large multiracial coalition building of literally millions and millions of millions of people across this country to push this country in the direction toward liberation toward justice and toward equity until we all have what we need to thrive and not just some of us
0: yeah and the thing is democracy needs everybody and it's not just at the voting booth it's day to day Mm -hmm. and if you have been observed observing the uprising, if you've been observing the need for social change and political change and you feel like, well, you know, I don't know enough. I'm a little intimidated by this. That's okay. And I I love the way that you really call folks into that work, Dahlia, that folks can come wherever they're at, however they're at. There's infrastructure available to guide you along the way. So it's okay to feel intimidated. It's okay to not know what you're doing. You'll figure it out, right? You'll connect with folks that do know what they're doing. And you'll learn your place in the work. You'll use your skills to be able to push things forward. All of us have skills. All of us have critical skills that can make the transformation of our communities and of this country a possibility, but you need to get activated Absolutely. beyond November 3rd. Yep. And
1: and that activation is really about, you know, staying organized so that we can hold our elected officials accountable. You know, we know that there are some diehard Kamala and, and Biden fans out there. And, you know, if if, if you're if your people get into office you can't just, you know, on November 4th, just say, cool, like life is life is good now. Like it's really about holding our elected officials accountable to the things that they say, to the things that they don't say, the things that, that we need them to say, and then the things that we need them to do. And so we need to consistently keep that pressure on. And this is really like about a, a lifetime commitment to social justice and not just coming out once every four years to vote and say, okay, I've done my civic duty. Like your civic duty is like literally a commitment to justice every single day. So we talked a lot about voting, the importance of voting, Voting not being the end all be all of the only thing that we do to stay active and engaged. We talked about voter suppression. We talked about, you know, the various tactics that we see out in the world to try to stop people from having the ability to vote. We talked a little bit about the history of voting. We talked about the electoral college. So we've been talking about a lot of stuff this episode. So we hope that you're like hanging out with us, staying on track as Yvette and I kind of co-banter about our feelings around the elections. And, you know, it is what it is, people. There's there's limitations and it's imperfect and it's just, you know, we can't say it enough. It's one of the many, many things that we need to keep on doing to keep the pressure on. And so part of that we're gonna get into right now is talking a little bit about some California-specific propositions that are really important when we're talking about holding the line, when we're talking about harm reduction, when we're talking about you know our ability to hopefully you know make some change in the material conditions of people, particularly who are impacted by incarceration, uh, we have we have a, you know what we can affectionately term as as one of our members uh, talked about a, a justice ballot. Going on right now in Los Angeles County and in the larger uh, state of California, and so um, I'm going to talk a little bit here with a vet who is, shall we say, a a policy wonk. We'll we'll give that to you. So so I'm going to like move a little bit into like I'm going to interview a vet about things that a vet knows about, and so um, we're going to begin with. Uh, what Yvette mentioned before on Proposition 17. Is there anything you wanted to just like offer the audience about Proposition 17 that, you know, you didn't talk about before?
0: I mean, just for some context about how important Prop 17 is, it would re-enfranchise over 50,000 Californians who had 50,000 who had previously been denied the right to vote, So it will allow them the opportunity to participate in our democracy when they come home from being incarcerated. So this is important for a variety of reasons. I mean, there's the basic principle of allowing folks to participate in democracy. It strengthens our democracy when we have a diversity of voices, especially those that are the most impacted by our systems of oppression. But additionally, it allows for folks to reintegrate back into our community. So one of the reasons that a lot of folks have a really hard time disentangling themselves from the carceral system, is because when they return home, there's so many obstacles to connecting to your community, to integrating back into your community, to accessing housing, accessing jobs. And when we allow for folks to participate in the democratic process, to feel like they have a stake in our electoral process, it helps them feel connected to our communities. It helps integrate them back. And that strengthens our ability to keep folks out of the system, period. And so Prop 17 is just one piece of that. And when formerly incarcerated folks are able to vote, on really important critical decisions in our state, it can open up space to be able to create more services, more housing, more access to jobs, and makes all of us safer. So it's definitely a yes on Prop 17. If you're in California, um, help 50,000 folks get the right to vote. It's going to make us it stronger. It's going to make our communities better.
1: Yeah, and and if you all who've been uh, with us in this bold podcast journey recall a few episodes ago when we interviewed uh, Taina Edmund Vargas and and vet. Um, and we talked about that episode was on mass incarceration and we got into voter restoration. And at that point, there was something called ACA 6 that we were looking at to try to restore voting rights there. And we referenced something called Democracy Needs Everyone. It was a report that Initiate Justice led. And so I encourage you all to to check out that report and follow up and get some more knowledge about the importance of reinstating voting rights to people who have been uh, who who are currently and incarcerated. And so we will link to that at the end just in case uh, you need it again. And now we're going to move into Proposition 20.
0: Can you give us the lowdown? What is Proposition 20? So Prop 20 is a ballot initiative that would make specific types of theft and fraud crimes, including firearm theft, vehicle theft, and unlawful use of a credit card chargeable as felonies rather than misdemeanors. So the ballot initiative would also establish two additional types of crimes in state code, serial crime and organized retail crime, and charge them as wobblers. So these are crimes chargeable as misdemeanors or felonies. So it puts more power in the hands of the district attorney to charge up people. And it also requires folks to submit DNA Mm. samples so it, it's empowering the system to expand their surveillance of folks it expands the net of the carceral system and it roll ba- rolls back a lot of the really great reforms like prop 47 prop 57 that we've passed here in california so it's a really really harmful bill it's backed by law enforcement unions it's backed by tough-on-crime policymakers. It does not align with our values, and it's costly. It's going to cost California millions of dollars to implement and then millions more in expanding our jail and prison systems to hold those folks that would be charged with all of these additional crimes. Proponents of this proposition are arguing, well, we need we need to be expanding our uh, criminal justice I would say criminal injustice system uh, because, you know, crime is rampant and we need public safety. But in fact, crime is at all time lows. In fact, here in L.A., we haven't seen such low crime levels in decades. And so there's a very clear disconnect in terms of the facts and what's actually happening on the ground, and this tough on crime rhetoric that is pushing bad propositions like prop twenty. Mm-hmm.
1: and and um so a couple things. you mentioned something called a wobbler. And so just for folks out there, just to kind of clarify uh, what Yvette was saying, was it gives a district attorney a choice. So on the same crime, The district attorney can determine, am I going to charge this person with a felony or am I going to charge this person with a misdemeanor? The outcome of that, if you think about it, who's going to get charged with what, right? So does that mean, and likely it will, that you know, black folks, indigenous folks, and people of color are going to be getting the felony charge on, on a crime that if a white person committed it, they would likely be walking away with a misdemeanor. And we, we see evidence of that all across the criminal injustice system. This isn't just, you know, something related to this particular proposition, but this is something where there's a, there's a lot of, uh, uh, alleged crimes that can be determined, uh, at the whim of the district attorney and how much they want to charge a person for felony or if they want to charge a person with a misdemeanor and then thereby increasing their consequences in particular jail time and so forth that comes with felony
0: convictions. Um, yeah. Yeah, and I mean, uh, the the legislator that was pushing this bill is a Democrat. And I think this is really highlighting the fact that Democrats are not on our side. Absolutely. They have often spearheaded tough on crime policies. We saw this in the 90s. We saw this with the Clinton administration. And Biden followed suit. So we need
1: to acknowledge that for sure.
0: Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, Kamala is a former district attorney. Absolutely. And she caused a lot of harm in her various positions. And so... We need to hold folks accountable for what they do. Right. Putting them in office is going to be better than this fool. And so, you know, we have to be holding those two things. Right. Like the Democratic Party is not going to save us. We're going to save us. But in the interim, we need to get this fool out of office. We need to get harmful policies like Prop 20 out of our system, we need to make sure that they don't pass in November because it's going to be incredibly detrimental to, to the communities that are already suffering right now. Mm-hmm.
1: And to, you know, the inroads that have been made in the state of California. So Yvette, you know, talked about two different propositions that help to divert people with mental health issues and substance abuse issues um, into, into care instead of into lockup facilities, right? Like it was a way to look more holistically um, at communities and, and instead of just um, getting people jail time offering options right offering different options and now here we have this uh this uh, democratic legislature who is essentially saying oh well that's gone too far we have too many repeat offenders it's not effective this that and the other so now we have to roll back what has happened when we know that you know the previous pre-
0: uh, previous criminal justice
1: reform efforts just have not gone far enough you know
0: yeah I mean I think you're you're spot on Dalia and despite all of these criminal legal reforms, the Democrats who have a super majority in the California legislature have not allocated enough funding to exactly. support the people coming home. Right. So it's not just about getting folks out of prisons and jails. It's about giving them the resources to be successful when reintegrating back into our communities. Mm-hmm. And so here in Los Angeles, we have the most massive jail system on the planet and A vast majority of our budget goes into the system, into the sheriff's department, into the DA, into our jail system, into the probation department. Over a billion dollars goes to probation here in Los Angeles. And this pattern holds true across California. And so we're wasting so much money, billions and billions of dollars, keeping folks in jail, but not investing at that same level to keep folks out of jail. Exactly. So we're setting, you know, we get
1: set up for, you know, failure around these policies that could actually be having a positive impact for our communities, but we're not actually funding them to the level that would be needed so that we could actually see the changes that we need to see. And when we talk about, like, the amount of money that goes to locking people up, you know, I was listening to a vet speak the other day, as I often do, because she's always, uh given us knowledge um and and mentioning this this number of like it, locking one youth up in Los Angeles county at more than it costs more than $600,000
0: $800,000 $800, $800,
1: a year $800,000 a year we have to lock one young person up in jail. Imagine what we could do if that one person, that one young person, received eight hundred thousand dollars in care for their families, for themselves, for their communities, for their schools, for their livelihoods, for rent, for jobs. Eight hundred thousand dollars to keep a kid in a cage, but we don't have eight hundred thousand dollars for for food, for health care. You know, we cry poverty when it comes to social programs, but there's always money for incarceration. My my friend Liz um, in White People for Black Lives, she said to me one time, why is it that there's always beds in jails, but there's they're always full in substance abuse treatment facilities or in mental health facilities? There's never enough beds, there's never enough housing beds, there's never enough substance abuse treatment beds, but there's they'll always find a way to have a bed in a
0: jail. They do, because the sheriff's unions, the probation unions, they have a lot of money and they have a lot of power. And it's these unions that are influencing the Democrats at the state legislature and the Democrats that hold office in our city councils and in our board of supervisors. I mean, the candidates for city council are receiving tens of thousands of dollars from the law enforcement unions. Mm -hmm. And I think this is a really good segue into Prop 25 because it was the probation unions that influenced this wretched piece of legislation called SB 10. And so let's talk about what Prop 25 is. So it's a California ballot initiative that would uphold a 2018 piece of legislation called SB 10. So what does SB 10 do? It essentially ends the use of money bail in California, which is great. Yay. Money bail sucks. It's exploitative. It mostly impacts black and brown women who pay over 80 percent of money bail. However, this is a wolf and sheep's clothing policy. It trades in the use of money bail. So it ends the use of money bail and instead puts in place an even more harmful system of preventative detention. And that says a lot because money bail is incredibly harmful. So what's preventative detention? That is essentially when you are incarcerated without a conviction. So under the law here in California, if you are not convicted, you are legally innocent. You haven't been convicted of anything. You've just been charged, right? Like presumption of innocence, folks heard of that, you know, you're innocent until proven guilty. Well, here in California, the current system treats you like you're guilty before you've been convicted. In LA, nearly half of our jail population is incarcerated pre-trial. That means incarcerated without a conviction, almost half. And like I said, we have the largest jail system on the planet, So we're talking about thousands upon thousands of people that are sitting in our jails right now, being exposed to COVID, being exposed to violence, and they haven't even been convicted of anything. So what is this even more harmful system that SB 10 puts in place? So what it does is it mandates the use of what are called algorithmic based risk assessment instruments or risk assessment tools. So these algorithms take discrete facts about an individual, like your age, your prior arrest record, and even your zip code to assign you a risk score, much like a credit score. But it doesn't take into account your individual circumstances or the facts of your case. What it does is it creates a profile on you based on those data points and it compares it to people with your similar profile. So folks of the similar age, folks with a similar rest record, folks from a similar zip code. And these data points are proxies for race because who lives in particular zip codes? If you're talking about South LA, we're talking about black and brown communities We're talking about poorer communities. If you're living in a zip code, let's say in Brentwood, we're talking about wealthier folks. We're talking about whiter folks. And young people stand the most to lose because age is the number one factor that increases your risk. So the younger you are, the higher your risk score. That's just one problem with SB 10. So it's a racial profiling tool system. They use racial profiling to determine whether you're free or whether you're incarcerated. The second problem is that it gives millions and millions of dollars to probation departments. So the language in the bill narrowly defined what agencies can receive pre-trial service funding so pre-trial services are all the services that are available to you before you're convicted to help get you to court so that can look like in some states text message reminders it can look like drug treatment but all the money that's going to pre-trial services in the state has to go through the probation department and why why is that a problem Well, probation is another arm of law enforcement by state statute and in practice. They're law enforcement agents. They're cops, right? They're cops by another name. They supervise folks. They can recommend that someone's incarcerated. They can pop into your home without a notice. These folks are going to expand their power. The probation departments and the probation unions will have many, many, many more officers supervising and surveilling our communities. So if you're down to defund the police, If you've been at actions and rallies demanding that your local officials, your local governments move money out of the hands of law enforcement, you can't get down with SB 10. It expands the power of law enforcement. It expands the power of these unions that are pushing bad policy at our state level. And then the third problem with SB 10 is that it expands judicial discretion. So what's judicial discretion? That's the power of judges to decide whether someone is incarcerated. And we're talking about folks without a conviction. Let me remind folks again. Innocent folks, folks that haven't been convicted. It expands the power of judges to detain folks preventatively. So even if the risk score says, hey, this person's a low risk, a judge can toss out that risk score and say, you know what? I'm going to hold them anyway. And this is what we saw in Kentucky where this Similar model was utilized to decide whether folks will be released or detained. Judges disproportionately held black defendants while releasing white and wealthier defendants with similar risk scores. Damn. And so allowing judges to have unfettered power is going to increase the number of folks inside of our jail system it's not going to decrease them. And it actually doesn't address the problem of bias. So a lot of folks argue, well, you know, risk assessments, like, they're algorithms, like, they're unbiased. That's why we need risk assessments to curb the bias of judges. Well, a couple of things. If the data that these risk assessment scores use are already biased, because let's remember, Certain types of zip, certain zip codes, certain communities are policed at higher rates than others. So certain community members are going to have a different arrest record than others. So this data is already not unbiased. And then you couple that with a system that gives judges the power to throw out these risk scores or not. You're not doing anything to curb bias. And then additionally. Local judges are going to be able to manipulate these risk scores. So let's just say the risk score is on a scale of one to five. A judge can say, well, we're gonna say that a risk score of four and five is a high risk, a two and a three is a mid risk, middle risk, and a one is a low risk. Or they can say, you know what? Two to five is a high risk and one is a low risk. They can manipulate these scales however these, they see fit. And one of our colleagues, John Raifling from Human Rights Watch, uh, calls these tools inventory tools.
1: Oh, damn.
0: Yeah. They're a way for the system to fill up jails if they're too empty. And it's a way for the system to have more unfettered power to bring more folks into the system. So this is a really scary bill, in my opinion. It's got a lot of folks fooled. A lot of folks, you know, want to support progressive policies. A lot of folks want to end the use of money bail, which is incredibly harmful. But they're not looking at the details in this bill that actually expands the use of pretrial incarceration. So you that you give a layout of SB 10. And what's the difference between SB 10 and Prop 25? Yeah, okay, good question. So Prop 25 will either uphold SB 10. So it was passed in the state legislature, but then it was challenged through a ballot initiative. So if folks vote yes on Prop 25, that means that SB 10 will be implemented. If folks vote no on Prop 25, that means SB 10 will be stopped. And so Justice LA, the coalition that I'm a part of, Dignity and Power Now, the organization that I work for, along with Human Rights Watch, Silicon Valley Debug, SC Justice Group, La Defensa, and many other grassroots organizations, we are in opposition to Prop 25. We say vote no on Prop 25 because we want a better system. We want a system that actually doesn't expand the power of law enforcement, doesn't expand the power of judges, and expands the power of our legal system to incarcerate more people. We want to end money bail, but ending money bail is just one piece of a larger goal to stop the use of pretrial trial detention. Mm-hmm.
1: All right, well, thank you for breaking that down because it's a little bit complicated when we get into all of that. And and also so folks know these risk assessment in- instruments, it's not just, this is not just the California state thing. Like this is across the country, different localities are experimenting with the replacement of bail with risk assessment instruments or just using, my understanding is just using risk assessment instruments in different, in different ways, am I correct?
0: Yeah, absolutely, this has been used these risk assessments are not new they've been used for decades and it's a minority report shit hell yeah it's using technology using algorithms to classify folks into groups of you know risky you know deviant folks versus those that deserve the right to be free
1: right and you know when we look at and we're not going to get into it today but the history of policing and the use of technology and, and surveillance and uh, in a couple episodes we're gonna have uh, a conversation with that you'll hear with uh, us and um, stop LAPD spying coalition's executive director Hamid Khan who talks a lot about the use of different types of technologies to infringe on the rights of, of everyday people and and it's almost like you know trying to report place, you know, human being law enforcement officers with these sort of data tools to do something that they actually call predictive policing, right? Trying to predict crime, quote unquote, before it happens, right? And that's what one of these risk, these types of risk assessment tools operate under this guise of like trying to keep us safe. But really what it does is it just creates the surveillance state and this anticipation that if you look a certain way, if you act a certain way, if you live in a certain area, you are inherently going to be more criminal. And so what we need to do is push back against both that narrative as well as this type of technology that is being used by police departments across the country to try to say, "Hey, if you live here or you look this way, then we we're gonna, you know, three steps down the road, you're gonna be committing a crime. So we're gonna try to stop it now, right?"
0: Yeah, exactly. This is some scary shit, y'all. Yeah, it really is. And it
1: only just means more, you know, chaos and destruction and and death at the hands of law enforcement in our communities and particularly in poor communities and particularly in communities of color. So Mm got to be on the lookout for how this gets used.
0: Yeah. And I can't stress this enough. Prop 25 is a mass incarceration bill. Full stop. And that's why we need to stop it at the ballot box on November 3rd. There we go. So our next uh, piece that we're going to be
1: talking about is something called Measure J, also known as Reimagine LA. And for all of y'all that are listening and you've been hearing this, you know, conversation around defund police and, you know, for people who might have questions around what exactly defund really means, we're going to talk a little bit about what that means. Because, you know, as abolitionists, which we've talked about in our previous episode, we're not just talking about tearing shit down. We're talking about building shit up, like building new things, building things that we haven't seen yet. That we think are better for our communities. And so defund police doesn't mean, you know, chaos and anarchy, as was said in the Republican National Convention for like a week straight. What it really means is communities getting everything that they need to be able to thrive. And if you give people what they need to thrive, then. We're not going to need police, right? Like and so and police don't actually serve the function that we have been brainwashed into thinking, right? Police do not prevent crime. There is actually no evidence that suggests that police prevent crime. More police does not equate less crime. More money for community programs, more money for families, more like education and healthcare and housing. That is what gets people what they need, right? So when we're talking about defund police, we're talking about investing in communities. And we have a real opportunity to be able to do that here in Los Angeles County as part of a blueprint for what's actually happening across the country and as part of a dialogue that's happening across the country that has become mainstream. So can you talk a little bit about Reimagine LA and what defund really means?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I'm really excited to talk about Measure J, uh, Reimagine LA, because it's the only ballot initiative of its kind anywhere in the country. So what Measure J does is it locks in 10% of LA County's net county revenue. So that means that locally generated funds. So we're talking about our sales tax, our property tax, local dollars. 10% of those will be locked in for alternatives to incarceration and community reinvestment, like supporting small businesses, like supporting youth programming, like housing. All of those things will be paid for with this 10%. And here's the kicker. None of those dollars can go to or through law enforcement. So that's what defunding looks like. Locking in dollars for the services that we need. And this can translate to as little as half a billion dollars or well over a billion dollars as the economy recovers here in L.A. County. So this is a really transformative measure that will start the process of funding a lot of the transformative policies that have been passed here in L.A. County like the Alternatives to Incarceration Initiative that the county started a little over a year ago and adopted in March. All of these dollars will have a vast impact on keeping our community safe, supporting folks that are coming out of our system. So over the last few months, because of COVID, the jail population in LA County went from over 17,000 To now, a little over 13,000. It was below 12,000, but it's been creeping back up. And so we're talking about thousands of people that are coming back into our communities in this pandemic with little resources, with little support. And so these dollars can really go a long way in ensuring that folks are receiving the care that they need. Mm -hmm. And that's what we think is true community safety, right? Right. Absolutely. I mean, when you don't have a place to live and for folks outside of LA, LA is the epicenter of houselessness. Like we have more houseless people here in Los Angeles than anywhere else in the state. And when you don't have a place to live, your ability to access safety, your ability to access care, your ability to maintain you know, some semblance of normalcy during this pandemic is severely compromised. And this is especially true for our young people. Like we have a massive population of unhoused young people. And over 35% of those young people are LGBTQ youth. Mm -hmm. So we're talking about incredibly vulnerable communities. And in LA, our houseless folks in Skid Row, a majority, a disproportionate representation of those folks are Black. So if we're talking about supporting Black communities in this moment, right, that have been historically targeted by these policies, these these harmful, tough on crime policies, Black communities that have been divested from, this is an opportunity to actually support those communities in concrete ways.
1: It's great. So... Yes on Measure J, and y'all will link to the website for Reimagine LA. And if you're not living in Los Angeles, you gotta check this out so that you can begin your advocacy efforts to get something like this moving in your area. It's gonna take all of us, and it's really about creating the culture shift that we see around what public safety really is. And we know politicians will say public safety, equals law enforcement we know a lot of you know well meaning liberal folks will say All we need to do is give more money to law enforcement so that they can get trained better, have the better equipment that they need, get that anti-bias training in, get the body cameras in, and we'll have a kinder and a gentler police force. What we do know, what the actual evidence says, is that all the training in the world does not make them less racist or less deadly. Cameras do not make them less racist or less deadly. So we know that the only thing that will Get us to where we need to be in terms of how we feel safe in our communities is by giving funding to our communities to thrive. And you'll see the different opportunities that Reimagine LA is thinking about as to where the funding can go in terms of youth programs, in terms of supporting black-owned businesses and so forth. So that is true investment in our communities. And investment in our communities does not come in the form of more cop cars and more police with guns, because we know that you know what really comes after. After that is is police violence and we don't need that in our communities we don't need that in our schools we need healthy and thriving communities Now we're going to move on to the last part of our election talk, which is about the district attorney. So earlier in our conversation, you heard Yvette mention somebody by the name of Jackie Lacey. So for those of you who are not living in Los Angeles County, or if you are living in Los Angeles County and you haven't been paying attention to the district attorney, Jackie Lacey is your district attorney. And so she has been in office for at this point since uh, 2012. And, you know, in in her tenure, she has uh, touted herself as at different points as a, a sort of law in order proponent. And now as she's running again, she's taking a softer stance and looking at, you know, uh, criminal justice reform efforts and investing in treatment for mental health and so forth, which we call bullshit on. But all mm-hmm. that to say, um, in her tenure, there has been over 618 people killed by law enforcement in los angeles county and she has not done anything to hold accountable the officers who have done that killing and so there have been people uh gathering in front of her office for more than three years now that was led by families of police brutality victims in los angeles county in conjunction with the los angeles chapter of black lives matter and white people for black lives and other groups who have been holding space there to protest her direct Every week. And, you know, to be quite honest, wherever she goes to let her know that she needs to do better and trying to hold her accountable for her failure to protect the lives of people in in the county and to really only support uh, the stance of law enforcement. So you all might remember from uh, from our first episode, we interviewed Dr. Molina Abdullah, who is a lead organizer with the Los Angeles chapter of Black Lives Matter. And we talked about Jackie Lacey. We also had some uh, we also had a report from the field at one of our actions there. And so I uh, cur- encourage y'all to check out that very first episode and you'll get all the lowdown on how terrible Jackie Lacey is for the people of Los Angeles County. And Yvette, can you talk a little bit just generally about the district Attorney's office and what the district attorney does, and like how they sort of impact
0: um, the criminal legal system. The district attorney's office is the gatekeeper of incarceration. They decide what charges they're going to pursue. They decide what cases they're going to take, and you know what cases they're not going to they're not going to pursue. They have the power to upcharge so they can look at a case and say, you know what, I'm not going to charge this as a misdemeanor. I'm going to charge this as a felony. They have the power to influence judges and say, you know what, judge, I think that this person should get a one million dollar bond and instead of a five thousand dollar bond. They have a lot of power in the county, so they have influence over the Board of Supervisors. They have influence over the state legislature. They have their own unions that push for tough-on-crime policies. So they have power over individuals, and they have power over the system. Um, Jackie Lacey, in particular, has been incredibly harmful because the DA also has the power to hold law enforcement accountable and jackie Lacey has chosen not to exercise that and so her department and i would venture to say most district attorney's offices will prosecute our poor our black and brown communities with impunity but won't exercise that power against law enforcement
1: So all that to say is she's up for election November 3rd. So if you're in Los Angeles County, vote no on Jackie Lacey. And you can also check out more information about Jackie Lacey by going to com. And we'll be linking to another site called Meet Your DA. And you can actually look up information about your local DA. So if you're not in Los Angeles County, you can find out information about your district attorney on that website. So we'll, we'll be sure to link to that as well. So with that being said, we have come to a close in this episode. We thank you for coming with us on this journey as we explored you know, the elections, the state of the world, rest in power Ruth Bader Ginsburg and we know that you know we're in this together and we hope that by the time that this episode makes it to y'all that we get some good news yeah
0: and, and just to recap it's yes on 17 if you're in California yes on 17 no on Prop 20 no on Prop 25 and if you're in LA yes on Measure J
1: So the calls to action for this episode, well first of all, it is vote vote vote. We cannot stress enough the importance in voting in this upcoming election. Now, if you want to take even more action, and if you want to join us in Los Angeles County, we'll have more information on phone banking and our various propositions here. And you can also join us to phone bank to unseat our current district attorney, Jackie Lacey. More information about that will be in the show notes. Also, you can learn about ways to get engaged in the election by going to showingupforracialjustice.org. There are two ways you can check out there. One is the election program and the other is swing georgia left phone banking we hope you'll join us thanks for listening y'all find links to what we talked about today in the show notes which can be found at patreon.com smallbeans the show is hosted and produced by me dahlia ferlito and yvette ale and also produced by kareem el zane and hannah Jarz allen of white people for black lives and mike swain of small beans comedy <laughs>